Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Dean Finelli. Thank you for joining us today on Politics and Life Science Radio. I'm your host, Dean Finelli. I am also in the Intellectual Property Department of Cooley LLP in Washington, D.C. I am very excited to have our very special guest today, Dr. Jan Bonhoeffer, who is a professor of pediatrics and infectious disease and vaccines at the University of Basel Children's Hospital. Uh, Dr. Bonhoeffer was also a former consultant with the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control. And for 18 years, Dr. Bonhoeffer led uh, the Brighton Collaboration, which is a leading global initiative researching vaccine safety concerns. Uh, We'll talk to Dr. Bonhoeffer in a couple minutes. Before we get into that on Politics and Life Science Radio, I'd like to just talk a little bit about some of the hot stories uh, as they are mostly and pretty much predominantly focusing on the COVID vaccine rollout. Johnson & Johnson is now uh, out there, as well as uh, the recent developments around the U.S. Uh, Johnson & Johnson's vaccine was authorized uh, a little over a week ago and has been rolling out. The rollout's been a little slow. Uh, It's starting to pick up about a little over 3 million doses of the J&J vaccine have been distributed. Uh, What is really amazing, though, is, you know, we think back uh, about a year ago, there had never been an mRNA drug on the market, an mRNA vaccine on the market. Now, uh, over 120 doses of both Pfizer and vaccine, uh, excuse me, Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine have been distributed, and we're coming up on 100 million doses of uh, these vaccines being administered. So really, truly amazing time. Uh, to think of where we were a year ago and where we are today. Uh, With that said, uh, in the U.S., a lot of states, uh, particularly Republican states, are starting to loosen up. Uh, We heard last week that Governor Abbott in Texas uh, was going to remove his mask mandates and open up uh, the state uh, fully 100 percent. I think it's worth noting and clarifying, though, that the governor in no way said that the pandemic's over, and he certainly did not say not to wear a mask. I think there's a lot of politics going on here. Uh, the governor certainly said people should still act in a safe and responsible way. But uh, as we know, you know, these narratives tend to get uh, sort of taken into the context of the political message. Uh, more recently, though, over the last couple of days, we saw Maryland, uh, Connecticut, Arizona, West Virginia, and Wyoming also removing their restrictions on capacity 
Uh, again, these states, although some of them are removing mask mandates, none of them are in any way suggesting that the pandemic's over. And again, I will reiterate, none of them are saying that people should not wear the mask. They're just leaving it up to individuals and leaving it up to businesses. And I suspect a lot of businesses out there uh, will still uh, keep to social distancing, keep those tables spaced apart. Uh, you know, certain industries, I mean, we saw in this is kind of spring break time in the U.S. We saw Florida, some of those uh, areas getting a little crowded. But, you know, I don't really foresee what we saw earlier this year, or maybe I'm just a little optimistic with this surge coming up. I, hopefully that won't be the case. Uh, a lot of things are in our favor now that weren't in our favor then. We saw uh, around the November time frame, the numbers start ticking up uh, after Thanksgiving and, of course, after the holidays. Uh, with social gatherings, people getting together. Uh, here, uh, now we have vaccines on the market. Uh, the weather's starting to get nicer, so people will be outside, which is also in our favor. And I think there's been a lot more acceptance uh, to wearing masks and just act acting responsibly. So uh, hopefully things will continue to move in the right direction. Uh, we keep talking about herd immunity and the amount of people that are willing to get vaccinated and you know, the at first it was kind of low. People were hesitant, and I think that's rightfully so. We, we had vaccines that were approved uh, on a pace that had never been approved before or authorized, I should say. Uh, and, you know, now that about 100 million doses have been administered, you know, we're starting to see an uptick in these numbers of who will, is willing to get a vaccine, uh, which I think is, you know, kind of what you'd expect. More people get the vaccine. People see their friends and relatives get the vaccine. Then they, you know, feel like, okay, it's comfortable. I want to be part of the crowd and I want to kind of loosen up. Uh, so, you know, naturally what we'd expect is these numbers to start going up. And certainly that's a good thing. Uh, we'll see, we'll see how that works out. Uh, originally we were talking in the maybe September timeframe of when we reach herd immunity to get back to that uh, normal lifestyle we had, uh, the way things are rolling now, we're over 2 million doses per day being administered in the U.S. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, about 100 million doses have been administered. Uh, about over 33 million people have been fully vaccinated. So we're about at 10% of the country as a whole. So certainly that's great news. Uh, but again, still a time to be responsible. We're not out of this yet, uh, but things are certainly looking in the right direction. Uh, I'm very pleased to speak today to Dr. Bonhoeffer, in addition to being a professor of pediatric and infectious disease and vaccines at the University of Basel Children's Hospital. Uh, Dr. Bonhoeffer is also an author. Uh, he's written a book. He's going to tell us uh, a little bit about that. And he's really a global expert on infectious diseases and vaccine safety and, uh, and a thought leader on how to uh, the medical profession should react in these situations. So, uh, it's really an honor and a privilege to welcome Dr. Bonhoeffer today. Uh, Dr. Bonhoeffer, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, you know, you, you have a, so much experience in infectious disease and in vaccines. And, you know, you talk about uh, in your book, How to Survive and Thrive in Today's Medical World, Dare to Care, How to Survive and Thrive in Today's Medical World. Um, what what is your impression? It seems like you know there's we're hearing so much about uh, people that look at statistics. You know they don't want the 
one vaccine because they hear one's 95%, one's 85%. You know, we're hearing variants. We're hearing a lot of things that tend to just scare people that really uh, in our lives, you know, we can't de-risk everything. Uh, what, what, what are your feelings about these issues? Yeah, well, thank you. Great question. Um, it's an interesting thing that somehow the safer our lives become, the more we're concerned about the safety. Um, but I guess that's a good thing. So, um, And certainly in the face of uh, the COVID pandemic, which is for sure a real, a real pandemic taking a huge toll, it has uh, you know, caused more, more people to die than, than the usual vaccines prevent on a yearly basis. So this is in a significant number and to have the potential and the possibility now to protect um, lives and to uh, save lives is, is really a fantastic um, opportunity. Um, but I agree with you that fear plays a huge role. So yes, we have an infectious disease epidemic and acting responsibly is important. Saving lives is an option. Um, but there is really um, a pandemic of fear as well. And so kind of COVID has uncovered or brought to light um, how we deal with life and death and how we deal with suffering and, and what our current concept um, of this is in, in medicine. And I guess that's what we're seeing now as the vaccine is rolled out to those that are less at risk um, of being, um, you know, of experiencing serious COVID disease. Now, in the U.S., we saw a lot of... Uh focus rightfully so on high-risk people being over 65 people with comorbidities and you know not so much uh, unlike you know a typical respiratory virus like the flu where you know it tends to affect younger people as well uh what are you seeing uh in switzerland uh at your hospital in basel are are you seeing that effect as well where not so many children are being affected by this it's really uh, more focused on older people, or uh, in your opinion, are you, or not in your opinion, are you actually seeing uh, people, uh, children coming in with the, the virus? Yeah, we do see children coming in, but I think it's kind of globally um, established that kids are clearly less affected and have sort of less, it's, they're, they're not as easily infected and they are transmitting less well than um, than adults and the course of disease is much milder. I think that's a pattern that we that we see globally. So that's very much in contrast, um, as you said, that's very much in contrast to the usual upper respiratory tract infections or even influenza. So where the, the children are really kind of the broker of, of respiratory viruses. Um, so here, this is quite a different scenario. It's, COVID is, is entirely different to, to flu as a disease. Absolutely. And we've seen, you know, with regard to children, that issue of kids going back to school, it's become very politicized in the U.S. Uh, do you think, uh, you know, just in your professional opinion, it's safe for kids to go back to school, you know, given that, you know, they're less likely to be infected and just as importantly, less likely to transmit? Yeah, well, that's a really important question. And I guess it's a it's a global issue where schools are kind of opening up and closing um, in all sorts of patterns and variations. And what we do tend to see is that the transmission within schools, so the child-to-child transmission, is really, is really quite low. Um, there are outbreaks. There are these kind of stories that we hear. But in, in general, the, the child-to-child transmission is fairly low, particularly in the sort of under eight years. Year olds, that's really where we see very little 
um, kind of transmission in the peer group. So if we do see outbreaks, mostly this is from um, adults to children. So it's, it could be like the teacher or the whoever is kind of taking care in the in the childcare setting. Right. And this is Politics and Life Science Radio with Dean Finelli. I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Bonhoeffer today. Dr. Bonhoeffer is a professor of pediatric infectious disease and vaccines uh, at the University of Basel Children's Hospital. Dr. Bonhoeffer, uh, you've, as I mentioned, you've written a book, uh, and when you, your new book is called Dare to Care, How to Survive and Thrive in Today's Medical World. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, it's it's interesting how how timely it has become uh, during COVID. So I I wrote the book pretty much before um, we learned about um, COVID, and I kind of just finished it off um, during the first months of COVID. And uh, this book is really, um, I feel like that's everything that is useful to know as a healthcare professional and as a patient. And there's things they don't tell you in medical school, and there's things that we're not conditioned in as as um, as patients. So I put together, if you like, what I've learned in the last 25 years that is not kind of written in the textbooks. And it's written in the way of letters to my, um, to my goddaughter, who is a young resident. And I'm basically writing to her. I'm telling her stories, real life stories um, from the many families that I was fortunate to care for. And this is very much about um, topics like self-care. This is about topics like how do we set the tone for the day? This is really about how do we bring care into healthcare? And what are some of the, you know, if you can kind of summarize for healthcare workers just generally, um, you know, through the pandemic and beyond, what are some things that, that they could do to kind of support themselves and even what patients and, and family members can do to support healthcare workers? Yeah, so there's, there's two levels to this. So one is kind of what can we do as an individual being part of the system as it is in place currently. And really to, the place to start is, is self-care. So how can we give in a time when our own cup is empty? And this is a scenario that everybody really knows. Everybody at the front lines is very well aware of, of feeling empty, feeling um, exhausted, feeling burnt out. Um, in an extraordinary stressful situation. And so the, to find islands for self-care, um, this is, these are really, that's the starting point, the starting place. And in the book I outlined in, in many uh, chapters um, what the potential ways are to go about this. Kind of going through the typical day, starting um, about how to start in the morning, um, how to set the tone for the day, about nutrition, about sleep, about actually creating loving relationships. And um, so many different angles about how can we really show up as an authentic human being and remain a human being rather than just becoming a cogwheel in a system that is increasingly drained and exhausted. And, and for the patient, really, it's about recognizing that in spite of the, the fatigue that everybody is feeling, that uh, still um, the core of healing, the fundamental healing force that we're, all, that we're all looking for, that we're all hoping for, particularly when we're in dire straits, is, is true, heartfelt, and honest care. And that is really something that we can request and dare to request as patients. And uh, that will hopefully over time lead to 
an adoption and a, and, and, and a change in um, the system, how we have built it. And COVID has clearly shown that, that the healthcare system is not ready to deal with um, an epidemic or a pandemic as we're seeing it right now. Yeah, and when we look at a lot of these patients and just individuals in general, it just seems like there's so much information out there that is just meant to scare people, whether it's talking about variants, whether it's talking about, uh, you know, whether we're going to have to have an annual vaccine or whether the vaccine is effective or not. And it, it, it seems like a lot of people out there, you know, are getting worried over issues that A, are out of their control and B, may not really be issues. What, you know, what do you think about kind of this, this almost a pandemic in and of itself that people are kind of scaring themselves of the potentially what could happen in a pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. So the, I would guess that in it won't be very long, or I wouldn't be surprised if, let's say, in a year from now, we will start to see all the data on the the secondary effects, all the ramifications of the fear-driven behavior that we have demonstrated as a society globally. And we will see, I believe, a lot of damage um, on the psychological level, on the um, societal level. What I see as a pediatrician that is really shocking is the degree of domestic violence just shooting up. And that is in many countries the case. So um, we will see a lot of um, the ramifications of the pressures on the families, the existential pressures on the families. Um, so we will we will see kind of a, a third and a fourth wave of this pandemic that is probably not driven by the virus, but by the consequences of all the measures taken. And how is the the situation in Europe, specifically in Switzerland? Are you know we've heard in the U.S. that um, you know the doses that we're typically receiving here when we think about Pfizer and Moderna and now J&J. And in Europe, it's more been the AstraZeneca vaccine over there. Are you finding that uh, availability is an issue? And is the willingness for people to even get vaccinated, uh, you know, high enough in Europe and in Switzerland? Well, yeah. So, I mean, the the rollout, the dissemination, I mean, it's it's an incredible task. And you've alluded to this. I mean, just to have the vaccine available in such a short time is 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 like a is a first. Um, It, you know, with with Ebola vaccine, we have seen similar um, rapid availability of the vaccine, but not a rollout at this stage and not a dissemination and production at this stage. So at this at this scale. So um, it's in a way, it's just incredible that it's even possible to roll out the vaccines at the pace that they are rolled out. So anybody who's really involved in such a process knows about um, the difficulties. So that's a that's a huge kudos to everybody involved in the dissemination, in the production and licensing or, or authorization and dissemination of the product. And yet, yes, all the companies are struggling and um, the dissemination processes really vary. And I guess we see delays or slower pickup as we would like to see it uh, in many countries. The, the readiness to take vaccines um, in Switzerland is, um, is quite high. So there's, there's not so much hesitancy here. Um, there is hesitancy, but the rollout is happening stage-wise. So it's 
kind of as in most countries, so that those at highest risk will be immunized first. And that makes a lot of sense. And then kind of those exposed and the greatest risk and those that are kind of the super spreaders and transmitters by profession. Um, so it's kind of moving like the U.S. has started immunizing teachers now. So, you know, this is this is uh, really the kind of progress. And, and I guess if it continues like this, then then there will be increasing confidence. So that being said, um, I wouldn't be surprised if we're going to see safety issues and signals popping up and it will be a daunting challenge to then differentiate true signals from from false alarms. Yeah, that's a great point. And we're starting to even see that now, uh, you know, 100, about 100 million doses have been administered in the U.S. And there's been recent reports uh, out of the CDC that about 900 to 1,000 people have died after receiving the vaccine. And, you know, making that causal correlation between, you know, when you administer vaccine to such a large amount of people, of course, some people will just naturally die having that causal connection between, you know, was it due to the vaccine or was it just the natural life course uh, is a big question. And again, that's another issue that's been very politicized here. And, uh, you know, certain people just look at that number and they're automatically jumping to the conclusion that, you know, the vaccines are dangerous. A thousand people have died, which, but I think you bring up a good point that uh, you know, there has to be that relationship between and that evidence to show whether the that link to safety or whether that link to any type of illness is associated with the vaccine. Are you um, in in Switzerland? You know, we've been talking about the U.S. having herd immunity by sometime this summer. Uh, is, mm-hmm. is Europe on that piece as well? Yeah, I guess many countries are are on that track. So. Um, it will vary, but uh, I guess that the aim is to reach a coverage um, of somewhere, let's say, above 70, 80 percent. And that's probably what everybody's aiming for. Um, and I guess in many countries it will be possible to reach this sort of in the towards the end of the second quarter or kind of during the third quarter. This is Dean Finale on Politics and Life Science Radio. I'm talking with Dr. Bonhoeffer who is the author. And Dr. Bonhoeffer, uh, when we, in your book, you have mentioned that non-love is like a disease that can be passed from person to person and medical professionals are often carriers of this condition. Uh, My last question for you is, you know, can you just describe all this of, you know, how this non-love is kind of uh, contagious as well? Yeah, it seems to me that um, our basic well, yeah, it seems to me that our basic state of being is actually loving. And what we learn during the day, that's what I get from working with thousands of children and babies and just looking into their eyes. And then as we go through life, we we learn about the dangers of life and we learn about threats and then we learn, learn about protection and we learn about objectification and we learn about othering. And so this is all about you and not about me and separation. And that drives us into that sense of, if you like, being a single isolated being, which is quite different to our original state and, and quite different to what we learn from pretty much all the, the uh, cultures around the, the planet that are older than, than our current science. And yeah, we do learn to separate from each other rather than to actually be together. And it is easier for us in our conditioning to to take distance and uh, we do this as professionals we learn this 
to be a have a professional distance. And really what we're looking forward to and what is healing is when we're close to somebody. That's what everybody tells me um, who is really has gone through it a, a hard time that it wasn't necessarily the doctors that healed, they kind of cured, but the healing happened through the loving hand of the mother or the daughter or the, the sister or a beloved friend. So I feel that uh, if we had a chance together lear to learn from COVID and we had a chance to learn that uh, sticking together and uh, um, uh, giving our attention to what connects us, um, this will help us to move forward as a society beyond um, the, the level that we are right now. So if we learn to live together, um, I believe this would be an important lesson to learn and to move beyond our current kind of reactive pattern of, of fear. That's why I feel so passionate about of sharing the message of Dare to Care. Well, Dr. Bonhoeffer, thank you so much for your time today. It's really uh, great to talk to you, a privilege, and there were really some inspirational words you have right there. Uh, please check out Dr. Bonhoeffer's book, Dare to Care, How to Survive and Thrive in Today's Medical World. Uh, it has a lot of important information in there for doctors as well as patients. Uh, it was an honor to have Dr. Bonhoeffer today. This is Dean Finelli. Thank you for joining us on Politics and Life Science Radio. We hope you'll join us next week. Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences. 